0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 220, and today's guest is Daniel Chait, CEO and co-founder of Greenhouse. 2016 was a pivotal moment for VentureFizz, and it was Greenhouse that helped us get to where we are today. We saw lots of companies adopting its ATS to help out with their recruiting initiatives, and it was their open APIs which allowed us to scale our job board by pulling in jobs automatically through a feed. It was game-changing. Historically, companies had to manually add their jobs to our site, which was easy to do, but let's face it, incredibly inefficient and time-consuming. Needless to say, I was excited to speak to Daniel and learn more about the history of the company. Yes, I'm always fascinated by the entrepreneurial journey, but this one was unique based on its impact the companies had on our business. I actually looked at some stats, and over 40% of our customers are users of Greenhouse. Daniel is a serial entrepreneur and now an author, as he and his co-founder, John Strauss, wrote a book that was recently published called Talent Makers. It's a step-by-step guide for implementing a structured hiring process, and it captures their experiences at working with more than 4,000 companies. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, including the details and what you can expect from reading talent makers, his journey into entrepreneurship, and how one of his companies, Lab49, opened his eyes to the world of talent acquisition, and how challenging it is, yet if you do it right, it's a competitive advantage, what led him and John down the path of starting Greenhouse, and the full story of how it built a market-leading product and scaled the future ahead for the company, including its recently reported $500 million investment to further their mission of helping every company become great at hiring, advice on how companies can build a more diverse pipeline of candidates, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you have been enjoying the VentureFist podcast, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing entrepreneurial stories. Thanks in advance. I appreciate it. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Daniel. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, Daniel, because uh, Greenhouse is a company that I think very highly of. And I don't usually start off the podcast by saying that, but uh, I I did want to make a special mention because you guys modernized applicant tracking systems, which is something that matters a lot to VentureFizz. So we're going to talk more about what that means and why I'm saying that later on. But you recently published a book, which is a crazy accomplishment in itself, Talent Makers. So what brought you to the point of actually coming up with a book, writing it with your co-founder, John, and then what's it all about?
1: Yeah, thanks for saying that, Keith. Um, You know, the Talent Makers story, I think, started several years ago. You know, at Greenhouse, we've been dedicated to this idea of helping companies to become great at hiring. That's our mission. And- over the period of working with you know thousands of companies, what we've seen is that you know most leaders today kind of have this idea that talent is important. Like they know that, uh, but most companies still really struggle to live up to that vision. You know, companies are still generally not that great at hiring, and so there's a real disconnect there because everybody's trying, everybody cares, but it wasn't really happening. And what we learned was that the biggest difference between the companies where hiring really works well and every everyone else, the biggest difference was not in the recruiters or in the software, you know, or in the job ads that they placed. It was in the leadership. And so there was this missing component uh, where you know leaders have an important role to play in hiring, maybe the most important role to play, and they don't know what that role is. And so talent makers is the name that we gave for that role. We, as I said, we've done tons of research, we've done trainings and workshops, really getting to know people like that. And what is it that great talent makers do that everybody else doesn't? And we've, we've boiled that all down to a formula and we thought putting it into a book is a great way to make it accessible you know, to everyone.
0: And there's a lot of uh, you know examples you share, plus, details on things like the greenhouse hiring maturity curve. So what is that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the question people have when they get, you know, when they hear the headlines, like, yeah, I'm a leader. I want to become great at hiring. I should read this book. The first question everybody has is, you know, where do I start? And the truth is it kind of first, the first depends on where you are to know where where to start. And so every company is, is different, but we've seen, patterns. And the hiring maturity curve is basically our way of saying, okay, everybody's trying to get better at hiring, but broadly speaking, there's a journey that companies follow when they go do that. And it starts sort of with chaos. And most companies, hiring is a mess. You never know what you're going to get. And you hear, you know, leaders and hiring managers say, geez, when I open a role, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it takes forever, sometimes it happens really quickly. You just don't know. And that chaotic feeling is sort of the the entry point. For a lot of a lot of companies, but as they invest in hiring and as they develop a process, they can move through various stages from inconsistent, where you know they've got one recruiter that knows how to do it really well. When that person's on the case, things go fine. But if that person isn't on the case or they're out sick, or you have more than they can do, this kind of falls apart and, and back to chaos. Once you've got it sort of systematized, that third bucket we call systematic, that's where you've got a process. that everybody kind of Follows the process, things are fairly predictable. Things are fairly orderly. You start to reap a ton of benefits at systemization throughout the organization, and then of course from systematic, the next level there is strategic, where you truly feel that your ability to hire great talent is a differentiator for your company. And so, most people when they hear that simple framework can think pretty easily like, where am I on that journey? And from there, you know where to start and kind of what's a reasonable you know, goal for you, let's say next year.
0: Yeah, And it's it's very apparent just based on the seat that I'm in, where I get to see kind of across a whole portfolio of 260 companies that are on venture VentureFizz. And I get to see firsthand companies that are leaning in from the executive levels on hiring practices and how they're driving talent acquisition and being very front and center vocal about helping, Right, right? And then you see other leadership teams that are kind of in the background and it may be uncomfortable maybe they don't feel like being in the limelight but as a leader you need to be leaning in if you're going to attract the best talent because that's the the role especially the CEO that person needs to be front and center talking and evangelizing the company and why it's the best place to work
1: yeah for sure and you know when you when you see a talent maker you know it right you know and 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 to your to your point keith, keith you know i've talked to CEOs who literally say my entire executive team and i spend more than half of our time on hiring. And I've talked to other CEOs who say like, I don't know what's wrong with my HR team. They're not giving me the people I want. They stink. And you're like, okay, what are you doing? You know. And so that's the sort of, I think, um, idea behind this book is to show people that as a leader, and you don't, by the way, you don't have to be a CEO. You can be a team manager with you know a team of three, any leader um, to show those people that there's a better way and that anybody can do it. You don't have to be Facebook and Google to compete for top talent. It's just stuff you can do. And, and people just need to kind of know the stuff.
0: So true. So true. That's why you wrote the book. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child?
1: <laughs> I grew up in Michigan. I was born, I was born in the 70s and um, you know, I was a nerd as a kid. And that was like back before being a nerd was cool, I guess you could say. Uh, But, you know, I remember when, you know, my dad brought home our first family computer in 1980 or 81. It was an Apple II Plus. And, um, you know, I was instantly hooked. Uh, You know, the idea that I could sit down and sort of have something in my head and and create something that would become useful, you know, a computer program, just out of your own imagination was just addictive to me. And, And I loved using it. To solve problems, I loved using it to help businesses, uh, believe it or not. And so, like when I was in, in in high school, I started getting a job first at my mom's company, and then at other area businesses, my school district, a political campaign that my family was involved in, and I was building business software back then. And so that was like weird. I mean, that was like a, a, a weird hobby I think I had as a kid, but but really helped. Set me up ultimately for the career that I chose later on.
0: Well, then you went on to study computer engineering at University of Michigan, which is a great school. So, so what did you do after obtaining your degree?
1: Yeah, so you know I'd kind of been this entrepreneurial, you know, computer kid growing up. As you say, I went to um, I went to school and and graduated with a degree, um, but not really knowing how I fit into the workforce. and you know, so I just applied applied for for some jobs as a programmer, thinking, okay, I'm going to go off and, and and do that. You know, entrepreneurship was much less popular and much less accessible back then. Um, and so it took me it took me a couple of years. You know, I applied I applied for a job on paper. Yeah, I'm put. Uh, you know, resume paper in an envelope and mailed it to some HR departments, which doesn't happen anymore.
0: I remember it well. I think we're about the same age because I graduated '94, <laughs> you were '95, yeah. so I, I remember doing that, putting it in the envelope, sending it off.
1: You know, and you had to choose: do you want the ivory or the off-white you know, yeah. paper? <laughs> totally. um, that was a big choice back at Kinkos. Um, and but look, you know, I didn't have; I couldn't apply to a hundred jobs. I could only apply to like ten or fifteen. You know, it just took a lot of work to find them and 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 physically apply to them. Um, I wasn't, by the way, after I got that job, I wasn't bombarded by recruiters all day because I didn't have email at work, uh, so they couldn't get hold of me even if they knew who I was. I didn't have LinkedIn; you know, LinkedIn was ten years from existing, so nobody knew who anyone was. Um, by the way, I didn't have; there was no glass door, there were no online job listings, and so I tell you that because. You know the job the world of job being a job seeker being a being a being an, an employee back then was so closed and you were so like subject to the employers who were kind of in charge and you know we say we open the book with this with this kind of glib line you know the war for talent is over and the talent won um but that's in a lot of ways the story of, of i feel like of my of my lifetime because you know, when I became a, ta- a talent, you could say, when I graduated college, I was I was on the other side of it, you know, and I've, I've witnessed that evolution. So, but I didn't last very long as an employee. I mean, I wasn't cut out for it. And so I found myself, you know, bursting at the seams and my employers weren't all that excited about me living up to my potential. They were much more interested in me doing what I was told, uh, and that just wasn't gonna work. <laughs>
0: So then you took the the journey into entrepreneurship. So, so how did that come about?
1: I was extremely lucky. Let me start with that. Um, extremely fortunate that I had, first of all, you know, the ability to forego the safety of a corporate job and even try. Um, and then doubly lucky that I, you know, had the benefit of, you know, a co-founder in my first company who was my college roommate um who was like me had a technical background and who happened to have a connection inside of a big wall street bank that had some end of year budget if you ever hear this thing of like you know companies have like user lose it budget Mm -hmm. at the end of the year well we had a lose a user lose it budget and they called us up and they said like we've got you know 70 grand that we're going to lose if we don't spend at the end of the year we've got this big complicated middleware you know that that's causing us all kinds of problems and is really expensive to maintain and can you guys come do some consulting work for us and help us you know get rid of this like middleware component mm-hmm. um and i would say the amount of business planning we did was about 5 seconds of looking at each other and then we said yes <laughs> after which we started to look up like what is middleware <laughs> why would you need it um but we just we just left in basically with both feet we quit our jobs um and started a company with this with this $70,000 Wall Street contract in our back pocket. And that was how we, that was how it got off the ground. And this is again, 1997. So it's, uh, it was a different environment.
0: And, and with that company, you started to build a product too in tandem of doing yeah. the services work. So, which was ahead of its time because there's companies doing this now.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You've done your homework. Yeah. We, um, yeah, we, uh, you know, we were doing some like project after project kind of like similar to how I just described. We got a few other, a few other projects. But somewhere along the way, we saw an opportunity um, because we had done some project work at a a banking client that indicated a market opportunity, that indicated a bigger problem. Maybe it just wasn't this one bank that had this one problem. Maybe they all had a similar problem. And so, yeah, we decided to invest in building a product. Um, There was almost no uh, startup industry in New York to speak of at the time. Um, there was almost no venture capital in in, in certainly not in, in the East Coast. You know, there was a West Coast venture capital industry, but you know, the closest thing we had out here was double click mm-hmm. uh, for those that remember those days. Sure. And so, you know, we were really on our own, we were figuring it all out, and we were paying for it out of our, our own pocket. And so we built a good product that I was proud of. We got a little bit of traction. But first of all, I was an idiot. I mean, I was 24 years old or whatever, I right? didn't know anything you couldn't learn anything because it's not like you could go online and read venture capital blogs and, you know, Saster and, you know uh, you know, strategery and all this stuff. Like it's so easy to learn, you know um, the basics these days. We didn't have any of that. Um, And then ultimately when the dot com crash hit, you know, we were overwhelmed and and out of resources and and the company went bust. So, you know, that was a, an early, an early learning period for me in in my career.
0: Yeah. Cause it was, it was like a, digital asset management for presentations. If you were going to pitch your IPO to investment bankers, it was like that, the presentation and making sure that it was current. And yeah, if
1: I if I started that company today, I could probably just smack it out of the gate for $500 million. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, but you know, yeah, like we had, yeah, I mean, we, like I said, I mean, we, you know, we saw a real opportunity, you know, we saw in our, in that case, like you said, I mean, these companies, huge companies were building these, clunky present presentations over and over again and and you know we saw a better way i was really excited about that and i think um one of the lessons i take away from that time again i was very young and i was fresh out of engineering school just a few years you know was if you build the pro if you if you can build the computer program you know you've got a great business and it turns out that you know building the computer program is only a piece of it um and often not the most important piece
0: yeah. Yeah, it was very different building software then it wasn't cloud and you know it was like you have to ship a disk to uh, have it update and installed on your computer
1: <laughs> literally i mean when we started the company we bought a rack like a like a metal rack i don't know if people even know what that is anymore but like you're about the cloud well that's just another company has a bunch of racks right well in those days you had to buy your own rack and you ordered a bunch of computers from dell and we had like a tape backup machine that we my partner and i would like Popped the tape out every night. And one of us would take it home in our briefcase. By the way, we had briefcases and we wore ties to work. I mean, it's like a different universe. I'm not that old, but every time I tell stories about early in my career, I feel like I'm talking about the forties or something. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Well, it's like a great disaster recovery plan. You like took the disc with you home. So like, if something happened in the office, it wouldn't go down. (laughs) Literally
1: that, that was, that was the mindset. And that's what we did. And so, you know, he had tape a and I had tape B and we would bring it home every
0: night. That's awesome. All right. So then you went off to start another company. So lab 49, what was that?
1: Yeah. So, um, fast forward the clock a couple of years, it's 2002 and I had met up with a couple of other guys like me, technical backgrounds, um, like me entrepreneurial mindset and like me had lost money building product companies in the past. <laughs> and so, you know, with that common thread, you know, we banded we banded this powerful team together with the noble mission of let's not lose money. And so um, we all felt that we were ambitious and 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 talented, but we just again we felt like you know the the career path of being an employee wasn't for us. We felt like you know the the human potential costs of of sitting in someone else's office were too great, and so we wanted to start a business. But literally, we were. You know, we'd all been scarred by, by failing businesses, and so we wanted to do something that we thought would be would be less likely to fail. And so we started a consulting company. We literally just started taking on project work because we knew that you know you you print out your business cards on Monday and you get a client, and by Tuesday you're profitable. Mm-hmm. And so we did that for 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 a while. Uh, but but early that first year, we really hit on a winning formula, which I think one of the lessons I had learned was you know really focusing on who your core market is and on what your unique value is and then ignoring everything else. And so in that case, you know, we really focused on digital transformation on Wall Street and delivering, you know, innovative, cutting edge technology that they couldn't get anywhere else. And that was where I started to That was really where I started to recruit, you know, at Lab49.
0: And that's so that's a perfect segue because eventually you ended up as you were scaling this firm, you, you led global HR. And it seemed like this was kind of your moment where you're like, wait, this is hard, <laughs> like starting to build empathy for the the recruiting and talent acquisition industry.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I had the, the dual realizations that this was, that this was really hard and that this was really important, Right. Um, you know, because we were competing, you know, in the global financial centers and the hottest talent markets around the world for the people who were the life, lifeblood of the business. You know, you didn't have to be a visionary when you're running a consulting company to realize that the talent and the money are really close to each other. And <laughs> if I hired, a, if I hired someone that was great, you know, that would let me go out and and wow my customers and they would pay us top billing rates and we'd make a profitable business. And if I hired people that didn't work out, it cost me money. Like, I mean, we literally bootstrapped the business. It, I, I had to write a check to the business. You know, we didn't get a salary that month. And so very early on, you know, we had the benefit of, of. Of learning that you know, hiring was business strategy and hiring and, and hiring excellence was critical to us to, 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 to get the business off the ground. And so, as we've talked about in this discussion already, as someone who barely had ever been hired and, and I almost never hired anyone else, I all of a sudden found myself in a position where it was life or death. And so yeah, I dedicated myself to, to learning hiring and to and to building and leading the recruiting function of my company, knowing that we had to do it differently than it had been done before if we were going to have a chance.
0: And was it at that point where you realized there's not a lot that supports this important job function?
1: (laughs) You know, I don't even know if I knew that. I mean, I really was just, uh, again, you know, there was so little in the way of kind of online resources and community. So, you know, you were hearing stuff. And again, this is like the early 2000s. You were hearing stuff out of companies like Google. You know a little bit about, about how they hired and how they interviewed, but but there was it was really figuring it out on, on your own. And and the, you know the thing is I, I didn't think of myself as an HR person. I mean I thought of myself as our business had three components. We were in the in the in the consulting business. You had to sell projects, and you had to deliver projects, and you had to hire people really well. Right. And so I was we had three partners, and when each of us took one of those one of those pieces of business, and so I was just running a piece of the business. But yeah, you know, we weren't um, we weren't caught up in like ATS. I mean, I remember seeing demos of ATSs back then and looking at them and being like, I don't know what this is, but it's not relevant to me. Uh, so you know, we we were more focused on how do I find people that are going to succeed at this business in a way that I can get an advantage because all, you know all I could see was like the way Goldman Sachs was hiring. I didn't have access to you know I can't set up a building on MIT's campus every spring and and wine and dine the top the top candidates. You know, I mean I can't offer them internships. Like I didn't have the ways that those companies were competing. And so, you know, what we found was that it turns out that most of those big companies had huge blind spots that we were able to take advantage of. You know, we would hire people because I didn't care where they went to school. And so we would hire people often that didn't go to college at all. You know, I didn't care where they worked. So we hired people that worked at companies you never heard of in places that weren't New York. You know, because I because I grew up in the Midwest, I thought, sure, let's go look in Pennsylvania. Let's go look in Texas. Let's go look in places like that. And we found amazing, talented people that did not at all look and feel, quote, unquote, like Wall Street people. And we came in and we blew the doors off the place.
0: So what's led you down the path of starting Greenhouse? I mean, because the story makes sense as far as you kind of like start leading the uh, talent function within your consulting firm, Lab 49. Uh, so, what led you down the path of starting a company that's going to help you know enable talent functions?
1: Yeah, so you know i I've done that for, me for about ten years. and you know at, at that point I felt like it was time for me to move on so we we took on some outside investment and I sold my my portion of the business. Um, again, amazing stroke of luck. Um, I reconnected with an old another old friend of mine from college, uh John John Strauss, who who is my co-founder at Greenhouse. And he and I started talking about what we were seeing and in each in our own ways, and he had a very different journey, but each in our own ways, one of the threads that we realized was that we had invented effective systems for hiring. And we increasingly started to see that number one, like we hadn't really invented anything. We kind of just rediscovered stuff that other winning companies had already discovered. And number two, how rare that was, how most companies, almost all companies haven't done that. And so... You know, um, that was really a big insight was, you know, while every company knows that talent is important, almost no companies are able to be great at hiring. And we felt like we had a repeatable way to get companies to see what they needed to do and to do it, that we could create a lot of value. And so that became the opportunity um, that we saw. And, you know, you talked at the beginning of this conversation, Keith, about, uh, you know, modernizing the ATS, like, I can't tell you how little we thought about the ATS industry when we started this company. It just wasn't what we thought of ourselves as doing.
0: Well, I don't think it really had that much of a presence yet, right? It was, there were certainly companies doing it, but not to the degree that you see today and the level of competition that you see today. When you started, it was just kind of like there was, you know, companies out there doing it, but not venture funded or modern API stack type of thinking with great design, you know, just like, I think you brought a different lens to a industry that didn't really have that yet.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think we we started with a very different question. I mean, I think, you know, and again, I'm not, um, de- I'm not discounting the companies that came before us for what they did, but you know, they came of age in an era where companies had applicants and they had to track them in a system. And so an applicant tracking system is a perfectly good solution to that problem, (laughs) Um, right? But when we we started Greenhouse in 2012, we didn't think that was the problem. The problem wasn't that companies, first of all, nobody has, you know, applicants are just a piece of the puzzle. You've got outreaching to to prospects, building relationships, like there's a huge piece of the puzzle, and it's much more than tracking, you know, in systems. It's all about, behavior change and getting back to this idea of talent makers, it's all about leadership and how does your company strategically um, position itself so that hiring is a core capability of the company. And our view was that a company who can become great at hiring can become great at anything, right? That human capital is the ultimate form of capital. Mm -hmm. And so that's just a very different problem than tracking applicants. It involves things like interviewing better. It involves like overcoming the biases of your employees in better decision making. It involves building out a sophisticated technology stack to find and and connect with talent all over the world in any form that they expect to be connected with. And so it's just a whole different set of, of needs that we identified that our customers you know wanted. And I think to your point, I'm very happy that if you if you look at the world today, you know, a lot of the applicant tracking system world has kind of woken up to that idea. And you know, I think there is a lot more capability and progress being made in 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 our industry than there had been before we came around. I think that's what, I think that reflects what we saw. You know happening in some ways our you know I would say our leadership.
0: Yeah and it's it was very apparent because all of a sudden you just started hearing you know greenhouse over and over and over again and you know uh almost half of our customers are greenhouse customers and when we st- we started the conversation i was like you know greenhouse has been very instrumental for venture fizz because All of a sudden, those open APIs where we could pull jobs automatically from an ATS onto VentureFiz because companies before had to manually add jobs to VentureFizz, And we know that's so time consuming. It's not a good use of your time. So if there's an open API job feed where you can just do that automatically, and then when someone clicks the apply button on VentureFizz and it shows up in Greenhouse as VentureFizz sourced this applicant for you, and the talent teams can pull their sourcing metrics and figure out is VentureFizz adding value or not, that, that changed everything for what... A company like venture fizz does
1: yeah and i think that's a i think that's a piece of the overall story for us because um you know hiring is a lot more complicated than it used to be well first of all let me just start with the basics there's a lot more hiring than there used to be right you know when my when my parents entered the workforce i mean you know you had one job and you retired and you know got a gold watch and today you know people get seven eight nine jobs over the course of their career and so just the amount of hiring to build a similar size company you know in 1960 if you wanted to build a 100 person company you hired about 100 people and now to build a 100 person company you're probably hiring multiple times that over and over again and so just just the sheer amount of work it takes to do the hiring these days is way higher than it had been a short time ago um not to mention the fact that uh the places where candidates are is more specialized Candidates have a lot more information that they're bombarded by and that they can get on their own. And so, as a company, you really need to stand out from all that noise and you need to be able to cut through it and connect with the people that you want. And that's part of, again, getting back to this idea of a talent maker because, you know, look, there's a whole bunch of technical and, you know, functional stuff that your recruiting team does for you that's amazing if you're doing it well. But there's certain things that you as a leader can only do. And our argument with talent makers is that to be a talent maker, you you need to step into the limelight and you need to recruit directly. You need to go meet with candidates. You need to tell your story, uh, you know, in in ways that's going to connect with people who want to come join the company. Um, You know, an offer that's delivered by a leader versus an offer that's delivered by a recruiter is going to be more effective. So in a lot of ways, the recruiting team is there to enable the business leaders, but the talent makers are the ones that do you know, such a special role.
0: And w- when you were starting the company in 2012, it was very different raising capital than it is now for software that was doing what you're doing. Uh, you, you had to be evangelist, and you know, you had some great investors coming out of the starting blocks with angel and seed funding. Uh Seth Goldstein, one of them, the founder of turntable.fm, which when I connected the dots there, I'm like, oh, I used to love that product. Another one that was ahead of, ahead of its time. That needs to come back. Um, separate story. But the um and then you had to because you were transforming an industry with some new forward thinking you had to evangelize this to companies to understand why they should be you know investing money into this type of software so how did you kind of get started to get that product market fit and then start to see that rapid acceleration
1: yeah you know it's interesting because we thought we were going to have to evangelize a lot you know being again like most of my stories start with me having the wrong idea This one's no different. You know, I was imagining going out there and, you know, grabbing people metaphorically by the collar and being like, don't you know hiring is important? Because what I saw was companies stink at hiring. And, you know, you don't have to talk to a job seeker more than once to learn that they hate it. Interviewers hate interviewing, you know, managers hate. It just wasn't working. And so I thought people must not know this is important and I got to get out there and tell them. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong about that. It turns out that this was everybody already knew it was important. And so we didn't have to spend a single minute telling people that hiring is important and talent is, is, is key to business success. The thing we the thing we figured out that we had to do is what do you do about it? is okay, so I believe you. I think it's important. I don't know what to do about it was the question that we were hearing over and over again. And so we found ourselves you know evangelizing this notion of structured hiring. As the key to unlocking so much of this progress along the maturity curve, um, and we found that there was a you know a minority of companies who already knew that, who had already figured it out. Because again, like I said, we didn't invent structured hiring. This was around before us. we written about a lot, researched a lot, but it was in not in widespread practice. And so we would talk to companies who were already doing it, but there had never been tools to help support them doing it. And so they were fighting their tools. They had. An applicant tracking system, you know, that the HR team bought. It didn't have anything to do with structured hiring. So separately, they would have spreadsheets and sticky notes and three ring binders and training manuals and all kinds of stuff to, to do the to do the work. And we came along, companies like that would say, finally. They would take a deep breath and they would say, finally, someone has built the thing that I've been wanting my whole life. And that was like 10% of the people we spoke to. 90% of the people we spoke to were like, aha. So for those people, they knew the problem I mean, they knew something was fundamentally broken. It shouldn't be like this, but they had never seen it done well, like most people. And so they couldn't picture success. They just thought hiring sucks. That's just how it is. And when we came along and said, well, actually you can systematize this and it's not gonna be easy. That's not our promise. You still gotta put in a lot of work. You just gotta put your smart people in the room. Um, but if you do it well, it can be very very successful and here's how and that was a real aha moment for most people that we spoke to and so um increasingly like as we've built the business now it's less about you know we have um you know you know we have to convince people that hiring is important it's more about helping them make the, make the transformation when they when they when they want to get there
0: now coming out and figuring out what to do about solving this problem. You probably found your lane and you started the journey down this lane and adoption and sales started happening. At what point did you realize, okay, now we can broaden the lane and start to do other things that help maybe enterprise scale customers that you weren't working with at first, but now support, right? And that's a different problem maybe that those companies have. And sometimes entrepreneurs get caught up in doing too much too soon or not doing enough at the right time. So how did you decide to do that at the right time?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've definitely been, um, you know, always had the mindset of, of focusing. Um, and so you have to have, I think, uh, an ambitious enough vision, you know, to, to um, grow into, but, you know, real laser focus on where you are right now and what's important to do now. And so I think for us, what that meant was having this, this mission to help every company become great at hiring. And, you know, anytime somebody asks me, like, you know, about the trajectory of the business, it's very easy for me to say, well, our mission is to help every company to come create hiring. I don't think we've succeeded yet. <laughs> like, right. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, at any given time, that also gives you, you know, uh, a sense of what you need to be doing next. And, and what's the next step along that? How do we get closer to that? And so we started with a very narrow focus. We started with companies that were more like those ones I said earlier, who said, finally, you know, companies I did not have to convince that structured hiring is what they wanted, that they wanted to do the design and planning up front. They wanted to do skills-based assessments. They wanted to use scorecards and data. They wanted to build technology stacks to to support, you know, recruiting um, efficiency. Those kinds of things, our earliest customers were dying for. And so, you know, we were there, you know, in a lot of ways, um, at the right at the right time when that when that way of working was becoming popular, particularly among kind of early stage startups and tech companies and those like early adopter, first mover, innovative companies, and they led the way. And so, if you look at our customers that we had early on, I mean, take company like Airbnb, who's still a customer. You know, we we signed up Airbnb. They were like 300 employees, and but they were like a very prototypical like high end, high growth West Coast modern startup and they got it. They got it instantly. They were like so smart. We were learning as much from them as they were from us for more. Um, And so, and they were aspirational in the sense that if you could succeed with an Airbnb at the rate they were hiring and the kind of talent that they wanted to bring in, then it was an easy pitch for us to go to like the next swim lane over of companies that were like a little bit more established, maybe a little bit more risk averse, maybe a little bit bigger, you know? a little bit older, more mature and say, hey, like we power hiring companies like that, you know, we you know, we have something to say to you as well. And, and so building that slowly over time gave you always the credibility that, you know, you needed to get up to like a little bit the next level. And then the other piece of it is just expanding out what we saw our solution was. I mean, I think in the first year, our solution kind of the, the benefit was you could say, um, scorecards, I mean, that was kind of like the thing. Um, but over time, you know, we've now been able to say, okay, what are the? If our mission is to help every company become great at hiring, that gives you two directions to move in, right? Every company means you got to get more and more companies, and becoming great at hiring is more and more stuff. And so, what are their problems around uh, building a tech ecosystem? What are their problems around spending their money wisely on job advertisements? What are the problems around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion? you know, what are the problems around employee onboarding? And so over time, we've been able to take a more and more expansive view of the kinds of value that we can add and kinds of problems that we solve. It. And so if you're trying to uncover the secret formula of Greenhouse, I just gave it to you, you know, <laughs> um, and, and if you want to say, where are we heading in the future? It's more of those two, more of those two things.
0: All right, so let's talk about Greenhouse where the company is today. So you've raised multiple rounds of venture funding, and then you had an exciting announcement this past January where private equity firm tpg uh invested 500 million into the company so just talk about where the business stands today
1: yeah we're growing really quickly um you know i think we're probably over 400 employees as of as of now and, and you know i think we'll expect to be 500 shortly later this year um we have approaching 5,000 customers um and you know talking about funding um some of your listeners may know this, but you know one of the things that, that's happened lately that I'm really proud of is we took on a majority investment from TPG. Big financial services company, big investor, lots of different funds that they manage. Two funds in particular that led the investment into Greenhouse, um, I think tell the interesting story, which is the TPG Growth Fund and the TPG Rise Fund. And so growth is TPG's kind of growth stage investment in, in software companies, and they look for later stage, fast-growing software companies that are that, that have big opportunities and need um, or would benefit from kind of operational support, you um, know, all the kinds of things that a company at our stage and scale wants to do as a software business. And then the TBG RISE fund is TBG's social impact investing fund. And so RISE looks for businesses who have, in addition to great uh, business characteristics who provide uh, measurable social impact through their work, and so for us, you know, the um, the idea is that as we help companies to get better and better at hiring, as a necessary outcome of that, we provide fair opportunities for people in the workforce. Right? Is that you know going all the way back to the beginning? So many people are shut out from the career of their dreams and do not have the ability. Um, to realize their full potential at work, because of problems, because of many problems, but one of the big ones is the way that companies hire. And so our thing is, as we help our customers get better at hiring, it unlocks all this human potential in the workplace for the hundreds of millions of people that are that are looking for careers. And so that was really what the Rise Fund invested in, and is going to hold us accountable to. You know, we have to prove year after year from now on to our biggest investor. That we're showing measurable progress in helping women and underrepresented minorities and economically disadvantaged people from getting you know helping them get better career opportunities it's it's really a um exciting and and somewhat daunting uh new new chapter for us
0: so on the radar for uh every company as it should be is building a more diverse workforce and you know part of your book talks about this like and you know so so Companies are coming to VentureFizz, I'm sure they're coming to Greenhouse and just saying like, hey, what can we be doing to attract a more diverse pipeline of candidates to help us reach our DEI goals?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a big uh, objective, you know, for for many organizations and more so in the past year or two, but, but I think it's been growing for some time as both an opportunity as well as a real challenge for, for many, many companies. Um, you know, we talk about this in, in Talentmakers, that it does start with leadership. You know, if the leaders make a commitment um, to diversifying the organization, to more inclusive hiring, to providing more equitable opportunities, you know, it all starts there. And if they don't do that, um, I think there's often this desire to like, quote, check the box, you know, that, oh, I'm hearing about it in the press, you know, and I don't want to get sued. And so can we do some training? And sponsor the pride parade and call it a day. It's like no, you know that's not going to do it. Um, you know, look, it involves like anything that's worth doing. It involves an investment in time and resources, but the payback is great, right? You know, research shows that companies that are more diverse perform better on any number of different uh, metrics. Um, not to mention the fact that increasingly companies are held accountable. By all their stakeholders you know it's not just financials that we have as entrepreneurs today but our employees even our customers are going to hold us accountable to progress in this area and again that accountability has to start with leadership so if you don't know your numbers as a ceo um if you don't have a pipeline of diverse talent to put in the management position as a chief technology officer you know if you're a chief operating officer and you're building processes that don't account for the diversifying workforce like you're failing your company um and so companies need uh from us you know things like better data and reporting visibility to what's happening in the hiring funnel they want to know things that they get out of greenhouse like what is the top of funnel for these roles and is it truly a diverse or am i missing out on on some candidates in the top of my funnel? where along the process are they falling out we see perhaps surprising to some people is often is not, you know, uh, leaders think of it as a quote pipeline problem. Oh, there just aren't enough, say, female engineers. And it turns out that when we look at their pipelines at Greenhouse, we see millions of jobs, the data shows that often is not, you know, the pipeline is much more diverse at the applicant level than it is further down into the interviews and hires, which means to say that companies are, weeding out or failing to move forward with uh, candidates from underrepresented backgrounds at a much higher rate than they are candidates from overrepresented backgrounds. And there's a lot you can do about it. The good news is there's a lot that you can do about that as a company. You just have to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, a few times you've mentioned throughout this conversation is a structured interview process. So like, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Like what are the mistakes that companies make as it relates to that? And you know. Like, why should a structured interview process make a lot of sense for companies?
1: Yeah, I mean, a structured interview process simply just means that you've got a plan and that you run that plan for every candidate the same way for a given job. And so there are certain elements of that plan that we talk about a lot. So the scorecard would be the set of attributes. You could say skills or, uh, you know, um, personality traits or other characteristics of your candidates that you're looking for that you're going to use to define success. You've got interview plans, which is to say, given that scorecard, how are we as an organization going to evaluate each candidate? Are we going to give them a case study? Are we going to have them whiteboard with us or go out to lunch with the manager? Whatever it is that they're going to do. And then you have those you know, same interviews being run across every candidate for the same position you know, so that you have the ability to compare apples to apples. And so that as an organization, you can run a repeatable process. You can be predictable. You can, uh, you know, increase your operational um, ability to do things in the same amount of time each time. So you, can, so you know what's gonna happen, how, many, how much resources it's gonna take and when you're gonna make your hire. Um, and that you can impress candidates um, that you're on. You know, most candidates, the number one complaint candidates have is they never hear back from companies. And number two is they don't think the interviews make any sense. And so you can overcome all the internal obstacles of unpredictability and chaos, of bias and unfairness, as well as the external obstacles of impressing candidates and needing to stand out from the crowd by this kind of more structured hiring process. And we talk a lot that we talk a lot about that in Talamakers how you can put that into place. You don't need a lot of software or technology. You can do it all in pen and paper if you like. Um, a lot of companies do it that way. Um, but you know, I would just say. Um, if you feel like you have em- employees at your company showing up into interviews, not knowing what's, what they're gonna ask ahead of time, um, or if you feel like you're opening up a job and you never know what's gonna happen, or when a candidate comes in, you get together with your teammates and huddle quickly and figure out who's gonna do what and what are we gonna ask them next? you know That's a sign of unstructured hiring. That's the root cause of these challenges. And you know the structured hiring formula is the, is the solution.
0: Yeah, no, it's a better candidate experience, better for hiring. It just all adds up.
1: Sure.
0: So, what are three apps you can't live without? Obviously, uh, greenhouse not being one of them.
1: <laughs> ah, hmm. You stole it. Um, three apps that I can't live without on my phone. I mean, Twitter. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that. Like, if I'm if I'm standing in line or something like that, I'll be I'll be doing Twitter a lot. Um, um, I guess I can't say email. That's cheating. Uh, what else? <laughs> podcast. You know, my podcast app is a big one. I just use Apple Podcasts. I'm not very sophisticated on that one. Mm-hmm. Um and uh Slack.
0: So the for the podcast, like what uh what are your the podcasts that you tend to listen to or recommend? Uh
1: probably my favorite podcast is uh code switch on um, NPR. Um so you know, for those who who may not be familiar, with the term code switch is kind of the idea that you know a lot of people have multiple different sort of personalities that they need to put on. You know, and and so you hear that a lot, for example, um, you know, in the African American community where they'll have a whole set of um uh, terminology and jargon and way of speaking with their friends and family versus what they have what what they have to do in a white dominated work culture. And that mental load of having to talk one way at home and one way at work is called code switching. It puts a huge burden on people. It's hard to do. and so this podcast coach, which is all about kind of issues of race and culture, it's done through a lens of both um, real earnestness and, and and humanity, but it's lighthearted. Uh, they bring humor, and kind of a nice personality to it. And so it's very listenable. Um, and and uh, yeah, I can't get enough of it.
0: Very, very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm always on the hunt for new podcasts. So that's definitely one that I'm going to check out. That's, that's perfect.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: outside of work, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Uh, I'm an outdoorsman, so um, you yeah, know I grew up uh, doing a lot of camping and um, any kind of outdoors activities and so most summers you'll find me paddling a canoe in the north woods of Minnesota along the Canadian border. Um, I wasn't able to do it last year due to COVID, but I'm excited that I'm already planning my August canoe trip this year. Um, it's the one chance to get away and go uh, disconnect. Um, you sleep under the stars, you know, and carry all your own equipment. And, just have real peace
0: that sounds amazing well daniel thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and uh obviously all the great work you're doing with greenhouse and all the great advice for other companies to hopefully follow and improve their hiring practices
1: thank you so much for the opportunity it was a great conversation